Chickadee Prince Books is the home of great fiction and nonfiction of all genres. Visit us at chickadeeprince.com. That's Chickadee the Bird, Prince the Son of a King. Declare your independence. My name is Eshbel Ross. Back in the 1920s, I was the first full-time woman reporter at the New York Herald Tribune. Well, that's not a position that earns you a lot of gratitude from the boys in the newsroom, especially if you write better than any of them, which I did. I retired for a while, wrote a few best-selling novels, but by 1936, I needed some money. Then... A real scoop came my way. Watt O'Hugh. The notorious outlaw Watt O'Hugh, messing for decades, presumed dead, was alive. And I knew where he was. I have my ghosts. In a way, I am a ghost myself. The Strange and Astounding Memoirs of Watto Hugh, a radio drama based on the novels by Stephen S. Drachman, starring Sal Rendino and produced by Danielle Wu. This week, Episode 3, Lucy. The New York Herald Tribune, June 15th, 1936. Our older readers may remember Watt O'Hugh III, um, Civil War vet, hero, outlaw, as the hero of the various dime novels that circulated back in the 1870s, battered copies of which were still passed around among our less discerning lads as late as the 1890s. His more enthusiastic fanatics may even have managed to spot his Wild West show, which played New York's now-forgotten Hippodrome Theatre at the first one, in 1874, before closing quickly and ignominiously. Since discovering his story and his alleged heroic exploits in Little Mount, I have wondered what had ever become of Mr. O'Hugh who has, over the years, variously been described as dead or on the lamb. He has now turned up, aged 94 or 95, living in some squalor on an inactive western ranch, surviving off the last bits of a small fortune, the source of which he will not disclose. He agreed to a brief interview on two conditions. The state in which the ranch is located will not be identified. And I bring a case of whiskey and a carton of cigarettes. Brand not specified. Master O'Hugh looks every bit his age, but he is still a handsome man. Imperfectly handsome, I should say. Recognisable from old photographs. You seem to spend a lot of time sitting here on your front porch and 
telling tall tales to the town's children. Not tall tales, God's honest truth. I tell them about my time fighting in the Civil War, my time roaming, the dragons I spotted in Utah, the ghosts that guided my aim and made me the greatest living shootist in the West some time back. Fire-breathing dragons are well known to be mythical creatures. Dragons are the lost link between dinosauria and birds. A few survived into the 19th century. They haven't been spotted in many years. You are correct that they didn't breathe fire. Cold-blooded reptiles couldn't breathe fire. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Indeed. Ridiculous. Speaking of ridiculous... You are a time traveler. Uh, time roamer. We can visit, but we cannot change a thing. Traveling somewhere implies fully possessing a time and place, which roamers cannot do. We are like the wind, like a shadow. Uh, you're an experienced hand at this roaming business. I've spent many days and years in the past and in the future. It's hard to get out of your blood once you get good at it. I never tried it till 1874, thereabouts, after the prison break. It's addictive as opium, but has its frustrations. Your readers may come across this article a year, two years, a century after it was written. I may have been dead for 50 years or a hundred when they read this, but don't be surprised if tomorrow you pass me in the street and I'm young and relatively handsome, and then you see me 20 minutes later in a crowd on your television, and I'm a decade older with gray around the temple. There are other roamers wandering among you. You can tell one of us by a certain distant gaze in his eyes and a certain thinness in his outline when you stare too hard. He won't stop to say hello. When you shove by him on the sidewalk, you feel almost nothing at all. And when you turn around to look, a gentle wind strikes your face and you turn away. We can recognize each other at a glance. We laugh together in your restaurants and your bars and we watch the sunsets in your parks. All but that most rare and skilled roamer can have no effect on the future or the past. If we try to change things, we fail. We can have conversations with you, but only concerning matters of no importance. We leave no footprints. I know the tragedies of the 20th century and 21st. But if I try to warn you about any of this in my memoir, the manuscript will be lost in a fire or through carelessness or spitefully thrown away upon my death. So all I can do is hint and grieve. It's because of my roaming that I am writing my story and writing it so fast. I finally roamed to the day of my death and it is coming sooner than I had hoped, but later than I had any reason to expect, given how often I've been shot in the head. How often have you been shot in the head? Once or twice. In any event, more often than I would have preferred. What do you expect to come from this memoir? Will you send it to Harper and Brothers? Are you the new Hemingway? <laughs> A real Lumen Abner, aren't you? I don't know what I'll do with the book. I may bury it in the sand, uh, but one day it'll be found and published in the 21st century. Huh. Quite a remarkable prediction. Mr. O'Hugh, we're decades into the scientific age. 
Yet you're trying to convince me that magic exists? I know these stories may help you sell copies of your memoirs. <laughs> As I have told you, I will die on January 1, 1937, and it is now 1936. That I am a dead man means that I have nothing to lose or gain, and that I can afford to tell you the unvarnished truth. But I don't believe any of this. It's nonsense. It's idiocy. Oh, lady. <laughs> believe what you want. It's people like you, city people, skeptics, who have chased the magic out of the wilderness that America used to be. I have seen a dragon scurry across the cloudless sky in Utah. I did fly among the snowy stars in Wyoming with a woman of the dark arts who promised me eternal life. Poor Oscar Wilde and I saw deadlings rise in a mountain city in Colorado. We really saw a whole army of them. And I fought in the first battle of Sidonia back in 1905. Sidonia, uh, the legendary magic city nestled in the Montana Valley? Yeah, not legendary. I wish that it were. Have you ever been to Atlantis? No, there was never an Atlantis, but I've been to the Chinese hell of the innocent dead. For example, giant, ferocious sand crabs, just for starters, and it goes downhill from there. It's the sixth level of hell. Out of? Eighteen. Can you, you, the remarkable hero, possibly have any regrets after this apparently spectacular life of adventure? I have one regret. What's your one regret? Master O'Hugh, what regret could a genuine hero have? A genuine hero like you. What is your one regret? Involves a woman. Don't want to talk about it. At this, the indomitable, possibly lunatic, O'Hugh heaved a heavy sigh took a heavy drag on his cigarette, took a heavy gulp of whiskey and looked up at the stars. And our interview came to a close. I didn't tell her more. She would not have understood. My diary entry on July 10, 1863 begins... I awoke in the arms of the beautiful Lucy Billings in Lucy's suite at the Fifth Avenue Hotel. May this day last forever. That morning, more than 70 years ago, I awoke to Lucy's smile, a bright white smile on a beautiful ivory white face. That July, July of 1863, was the early culmination of my own summer of love which occurred more than a hundred years before yours. I was 21 years old. Lucy and I had been together for one year and one month. And I didn't mind that she was a subversive. I wouldn't have minded even if I'd known what the word meant. Happy anniversary. What shall we do today? Anything you want. It is our anniversary. The first of many. <laughs> what? 
I can teach you a few things, and assuredly you shall fall in love with me madly, <laughs> but only briefly. <laughs> she was right about the madly part. I was born in 1842, and she was a bit ambiguously older than I. Not too much older, I suppose, but just enough to teach me a lesson or two on a number of subjects. <laughs> Such as how to impress New York society big bugs with just the right turn of phrase in just the right slightly unidentifiable accent. How to dance the German at a society ball at a respectable address on the Fifth Avenue. The proper way to stab my fork into a bloody red steak in the starched white stuffiness of Delmonico's stifling cavernous dining room. How to applaud graciously from the good seats in the Grand Opera House. I taught you about a couple of other subjects I recall, such as abolitionism, suffragism, the free love movement economic egalitarianism, political subversion, and the overthrow of the codfish aristocracy class. From this philosophical grab bag, I had my personal favorite. Back then, I was young as the dew on a daisy, and I was excited to learn such things, especially if I were to learn from Lucy Billings, whom I loved then and whom I love still, separated from her even as I am by decades Lucy was an American girl from common blood, I thought, but she claimed to be an heiress from the old country, and I, along with New York, pretended to believe her. She invented both her pedigree and her accent. The true source of her money was less reputable than her legend. But everyone in New York City was a liar back in those days, back in the gilded 60s. Well then, Lucy, how shall we celebrate our very, very last anniversary? What shall we do? Everything. Let's do everything, what? I awoke in the arms of the beautiful Lucy Billings. May this day last forever. As I wrote those words in my journal at the beginning of that perfect day that I wished would last forever, I could hardly expect that on July 13, 1863, which was the following Monday, Lucy would slip silently from my life without even a goodbye. Chickadee Prince Books is the publisher of Don Eleven's novel, He Could Be Another Bill Gates. Booklist raves, full of pathos, wit, and tenderness, Don Eleven's latest novel, He Could Be Another Bill Gates, will appeal to any parent who has felt stuck between a rock and a hard place. A tender and realistic portrait of a non-traditional yet immediately recognizable family. Pick up Don Eleven's novel, He Could Be Another Bill Gates, wherever books are sold, and visit us at chickadeeprince.com. That's Chickadee the Bird, Prince the Son of a King. Declare your independence. Lucy said, let's do everything. <laughs> and here's what we did. She took me to the horse races in Jerome Park, where, in my one good suit, I passed myself off as a gentleman. I cannot remember much of the ensuing early evening, although I know that we dined at some place appropriately fashionable, and that Lucy slipped me some cash under the table with which to pay the bill. 
now, darling? I think I have an idea. I'm expecting something reckless, romantic. I have a genuinely reckless and romantic brainstorm for an end to our evening. Near midnight, I found myself drunk in a rowboat in the North River just off the Manhattan Island shore, watching Lucy laugh with deep affection in her deep blue eyes. She ran one gloved hand through her blonde hair, which caught the moonlight. Lucy was smooth as an ivory statue and soft as a velvet pillow. She had a slender waist, the kind heart of an angel, plump red lips. She wore a scarf of feathers about her neck, and I was 21. After a while, I began to play my ukulele, tolerably well, and to sing a popular song of that particular decade, less tolerably well, called... Not coincidentally, Lucy, about a beautiful girl who leaves a boy and breaks his heart. Soft spirit, when you went, you left some portion of yourself in me, which has been woven in the web of all my life and Lucy, Lucy, the wind blows softly on. There is no knowing if it is cruel or cross or merely blowing. From calm and clear, you We splashed farther into the dark distance. Look, Watt. The palace car that drew us down the Third Avenue tonight is not but a blurry, fluttering line of light. And the oyster stores along the wharf we just left no longer stink like a dead polecat. What are you looking at? Uh, Lucy, my gaze roams, as always, to dark swamp of my old childhood orphan home, which consumes the vitality of the metropolis like a vortex. And? A mile to the north of my ghetto, like a castle on a hill, the lights of Broadway shine and taunt. A golden fairyland of joy, just out of reach beyond the slum apartments. See the lighthouse, just to the west? flickering in the Staten Island sound. And beyond that, the country mansions on the Staten Island resort, behind the heavy guns that line its shore. Canal boats and steamships raced along through the starry water, and the all-night gaslit ferries, ringed by colored lamps, seemed to set the river aflame. Manhattan Island was a Christmas tree with pretty ornaments, swinging in the wind, harmless and lovely. Our little boat bobbed on eddies and swirls as the ships passed, and Lucy smiled in the darkness. What? Look. It's a little island. Let's go ashore. I hopped into the gently lapping surf, pulled the boat up onto the narrow rocky coastline, 
took one of Lucy's white-gloved hands in mine and helped her ashore. It was just a towhead, really, with, with a few trees casting a romantic shadow, a towhead that wanted to be an island but which would never appear on any map and which has since been washed away by the tides and no longer exists. But back then it existed, and it seemed as permanent as the mansions and wide sidewalks of the Fifth Avenue, the racetrack at Jerome Park, the, the slums of the Five Points. Lie down with me on the sand, what? Look at the stars. I'm here. I'm right beside you. I imagine that you and I are staring at exactly the same star right now. The one I'm focused on is somewhat round and shiny and pretty. I imagine that there is a planet rotating around that very star with a young man and a somewhat young but somewhat older woman staring right down at us, thinking the very same thoughts that you and I are thinking at this very moment and saying the very same things. I wonder what will happen to that young man and that somewhat young woman. What is the name of this island? It doesn't have a name. Then we shall call it Lucy's Island. And a thousand years from now, lovers will still row out there. And sometimes the girl will wonder to the boy, I wonder who Lucy was. And the boy will say, I imagine that she was the first girl to fall in love on this island. And would he be right? What? Do you hear that? There was a discordant noise in the woods which distracted us both, put a chill in the air, seemed to melt into the vapor and made Lucy's breath catch in her throat. I tried to shrug it away back then, 70 years ago, and why not? I had other things on my mind. I wrapped my coat around Lucy and I caressed one rosy cheek. But now I wish that I had paid some bit of attention to that noise in the woods and that I had listened to the words ringing in my ears, because that noise in the woods was none other than my older self, wiser, sadder, and more than a little translucent and fuzzy around the edges, who had traveled back through the decades to a moment in the past when my lustrous Lucy Billings might just have chosen to marry me, had I only asked, and thus changed all that was to come. The gray-haired Wado Hugh was roaming time, drifting with the ancient ceaseless wind as it wound through the millennia wreaking its havoc. My older self whispered in my own younger, foolisher ear like a ghost, Marry me, Lucy. Just ask her. Now. Just ask her now. Save us both. This program starred Sal Rendino as Wado Hugh and featured Emily Dalton, Jordan Gwizdowski, Morrison James, Arnold Kim, Annie Mack, Anthony Tether, Mabel Thomas, and Eric Yang. Theme song and incidental music composed by Derek K. Miller, with additional incidental music by Danielle Wu. 
The Strange and Astounding Memoirs of Watto Hugh was produced by Danielle Wu. The song Lucy was sung by Andrew Orsi with music by Robin Berger and lyrics by Julian Drachman.